G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 6 Review, the Anzac Round and a big Anzac Eve game and a big Anzac Day game, but plenty more besides. Plenty of drama, plenty of controversy, plenty of important wins, um, some surprises, uh, the whole lot. And we're going to bring it to you all in vast details. I say very good evening to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. What would you make of it all, Finey? Well, gee, the football landscape we know can change dramatically in a week, but the demons of sort of in my time following football have never sat so impressively at the top end of the ladder. That demolition of Richmond was superb and it may be changing to a, an extent that we've never seen, well, I haven't seen in my lifetime. I know you haven't, Rowan. Could Melbourne win this year's premiership? It's on the cards. Well, absolutely it is. And uh, another pretty significant result down at the Cattery for both of those sides. Some significance too with COVID, unfortunately. Uh, things starting to look a little precarious at the moment in terms of the future of this scheduled season. But we'll get around to that in due course. I'll tell you what will never be in doubt, Fidey. That is the best hamburger in the known universe. Yeah. Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. It's within grasp of all Melburnians and certainly if you live within you know any distance to get a hot burger back home for a beautiful Sunday night feed then head down to 144 Bridport Street Apple Park you'll meet one of the two Greggs yeah not Andrew Greggs they're running the show and they make a burger that has been voted top of the tree so many times it's not funny Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridgeport Street, Albert Park. I'll tell you what else I'd like to avail myself of. I've been doing some house hunting lately. I feel like I've seen half the houses in the southeastern suburbs. And every time I walk into one, the first thing I think is, well, this isn't bad, but boy, would I like to be living in a place that had been tarted up by Nick Spartels and the boys. Yeah, that's a good definition. Well, better than tarted up, rebuilt to the finest specifications. Eye for design, architecturally cutting edge. It's West Point Properties and Nick Spartels, he's the principal and makes sure that his eye is cast over every day's work. He's a hardworking man, is our man Nick, in the southeast of Melbourne suburbs for rebuilds and renovations. I'll tell you who else works pretty hard. The best stats guys in town, Footyology, proud partners with Stats Insider. They are leading sports data analysts. They sample results from 15 different sports around the globe. They do 10,000 takes on their projections 
for games between various sides in various competitions. You can't get more accurate than these blokes and all the stuff on their site is free to use. Fantastic site. There's some good quality writing on it as well. I might even bob up it on it from time to time just to drag the tone down a bit. But it's a great website and they do great work, the boys at Stats Insider. And we are very proud to have them on board. Very proud to have you guys listening to our podcast as well. And we've got a lot of footy to talk about. Let's do it right now. On Footyology, wrap around. Well, no Thursday night footy for the moment. So round six kicked off on Friday night up in Canberra and suitably chilly it was. I'm told the temperature got down to about one degree at one stage. Uh, didn't detract from the contest. So it's a pretty good game and a really tough contest for three quarters before the Western Bulldogs exploded in a hail of last quarter goals. They kicked nine in the last quarter to end up very, very comfortable 39-point victors. The final scores, the Doggies 15-14, defeating Greater Western Sydney 9-11-65. The goal kickers for the victors, we had five players kicking each of two, as Peter Landy would say, Bruce, McNeil, Liberatore, Dale and Norton. And for GWS, that man, Toby Green, he is having some sort of season. Four goals to him, singles the rest. Well, finally, for three quarters, you had to give the Giants plenty of credit for hanging in there. They made it very tough for the Bulldogs to get their run and and handball and link-up game going. Uh, But the Doggies eventually wore them down because they can play a bit of a pressure game too. They wore the Giants' resistance down and then, boy, did the damn wall break in that last quarter with 9-3 to three goals three. And uh, they are just looking terrific at the moment. Fantastic win by them. Yeah, look, the tactic by GWS was full of merit, given that they were playing an undefeated powerhouse in the Bulldogs. And they took the field with the youngest side that any AFL team has fielded this year, average age and average least number of games. So... To stay in the game until early in the last quarter certainly gives them a tick for sticking to a game plan. The problem was that their ball movement was such that when the doggies were able to string a goal or two together, they didn't have gears that they could go through to respond to that. In fact, in attempting to pull back just a 15-point margin, they really opened up the defensive the defensive wall separated and the cracks appeared and the doggies are just too good not to take advantage of it. So really their hand was forced. They had to go for the game, but quicker ball movement didn't work out for them. And that midfield, look, McRae and Bontempelli, if it's um, two goals apiece, then I'll do another Peter Landy. Six of one, half a dozen of the other for best on ground. They really were the dominant midfielders. The whole midfield had their say. I thought Alex Keats, Keith was pretty impassable defensively. Crozier gives them the extra one. And the doggies just go from strength to strength with still the very interesting Eugle Hagen waiting in the wings, having kicked five goals in the VFL that same night. 
I'm becoming rapidly convinced we are privy to one of the great modern day midfield combinations because there are so many of them and they are of such high quality. And as I said, they have the perfect balance of an inside and outside game to wit. They got their hands on the footy about 70 more times than the Giants. They won the clearance count by 14, which is pretty decisive. They won the centre bounce clearances 17-7. But here's the big one for me. They won on the outside. They won the uncontested disposal count by 42. And they won the contested ball count by 43. So that's a lot of dominance. The inside 50s reflected that. Although they didn't have a heap more, to be honest. But it's not only the amount of ball I get now. They use it very efficiently. Someone asked me on Saturday, is this side better than the 2016 version? I have absolutely no doubt this side is better than the 2016 version. It's got better personnel. It's got a far, far more potent attack with Bruce and Norton. As you said, Hugo um, Hagen hasn't even played yet. And I think their defence is better too. As to the midfield, well, just quality, quality, quality. They're going to have their depth tested in what looms as a Massive game against Richmond next week. We don't know at this stage about the likelihood of English uh, Dunkley playing. We know poor old Lin Jong's going to be out for quite a while. But I think their depth is pretty good too. They are just looking an absolute treat at the moment, the Doggies. And uh, very early call on that Richmond game. You'd have to give them every chance of winning it. Oh, we know Dustin Martin's not playing because of concussion protocol. So they go in with a huge advantage in the midfield and would start clear favourites. Yep, they're going to be a big chance of winning it. Well, that is going to be a massive clash next Friday night, 7.50 at the MCG. Of course, Footyology final. Soren will be there to break down the game immediately after it finishes. Um, That is going to be a great game. The Giants, for their part, well, they've got a, a tough Asked to negotiate themselves, they have to beat the Crows at Adelaide Oval. And, of course, the Crows involved in a very interesting and entertaining game also in round six, which we will talk about shortly. All right, that is Friday night covered off. Five games on the Saturday this week. Let's have a chat about them. Well, we spoke in our preview episode Friday about how difficult a task it is for anyone to win down at Geelong, most of all a side visiting from interstate and most of all a side from the other side of the country. So it proved once again because this was an absolute massacre and it was West Coast on the receiving end. A 97-point thumping dealt the Eagles by Geelong. The final scores... 21-10, 136, the Cats. To the Eagles, poultry, 5-9-39. And uh, that, mind you, after the Eagles actually got off to a pretty good start with... uh, In fact, did they kick the first three goals of the game? I think they might have been three of the first four. Three of the first four. And and, and seemingly into a breeze as well. Well, dominant for all of five minutes. And then it all fell apart. Let's talk about the goal kickers. Mitch Duncan playing forward. Four goals to him, including an absolute peach with a big barrel after the halftime siren. Three goals to Jeremy Cameron in his first game for the Cats. Pretty impressive. Gary Rowan, three. Three to Tom Hawkins. And two to Lockie Henderson, who managed to creep forward from defence a couple of times and hit the scoreboard himself. 
And just five goals for the Eagles. Their only multiple goal kicker, Oscar Allen. More pain for them. Your man, Jeremy McGovern, injured himself yet again. But this one looked pretty genuine finally. I think uh, a groin injury is going to have him pretty doubtful for a few weeks. So pretty another pretty ugly road trip for the Eagles. They have won at Cadenia Park only once since 1999. So that makes it now, I think, one from about the past 14 or 15 attempts. What do you make of this very lopsided affair? Well, first of all, Geelong, we hadn't really seen them click into gear, had we, throughout the season. Wins had come with a bit of tooth pulling for Geelong at this stage. And at quarter time, really no inkling as to what was about to happen. They they sort of really seemed to enjoy Jeremy Cameron getting a couple of goals in that second quarter. It lifted the crowd, it lifted the players, it lifted the spirit. And all of a sudden, Geelong were in motion again. Stewart reigning supreme across the half-back line, the great general that he is. And the problem for the West Coast Eagles is that they look as flat as a pancake. Do you remember a game there? Oh, it was a few years ago, two or three years ago, where, again, it ended up in tears for them. And Nick Natanui that afternoon was famously pictured on the interchange bench sort of moping. He seemed to be doing a fair bit of moping on the field. He's a long way from home at GMHBA, isn't he? And he didn't look himself at all. He is. And look, Adam Simpson, to his credit, certainly wasn't offering excuses. He was skating in his... Post-game press conference, he talked about them being embarrassing and he talked about lack of effort. I guess you do have to ask the question whether the COVID dramas, because the entire game was in some sort of doubt still only hours before it started, uh, given the issues with the coronavirus in Perth. And I guess the Eagles players not knowing, you know, were they going to be able to go back to Perth, what their status was, can't help wondering if that played on their mind, but I think that combined with the difficult assignment with some key injuries, you know, we know, well, not only this week did they miss um, Shuey and Yo, but also missed Josh Kennedy up forward. So it was always going to be tough for them. But I'll tell you what, one thing that does worry me about the Eagles, and as you know, I'm a fan, is just their lack of resistance when things go against them. They don't seem able to pull themselves out of a bad day very easily, do they? No, and they were run over by St Kilda, annihilated by Geelong. This now compounds to a re-emergence of always a problem for WA teams, and that is poor form interstate. And it appears, though, they can't afford to be losing a quality player every week. So they have had a rough run with injuries because the injuries have come to the wrong players. You know, don't underestimate the importance of Liam Ryan to set a game alight, to kick goals, to ignite, you know, to, to ignite the match that lifts other players. And he finished one, you know, the, his injury came sort of out of left field, didn't it? Because it was a midweek injury. He finished the game and then we found out he's going to be out for a couple of months. So That's a good call. I should have mentioned him when I talked about who they were missing. That was yeah. an obvious one. So, so the West Coast Eagles now play catch-up every time they go back home. And that's no good. When I say catch-up, they've got to make up percentage and they've got to make sure they win. They drop one at home and all of a sudden the finals become a question mark, don't they? Yeah, they absolutely do. And I guess their uh, 
Western Australian cohort, uh, Fremantle, are in a similar position, which is pretty interesting, seeing they play each other next week in the traditional WA derby. That is the last scheduled game of round seven, 4.40pm Eastern Standard Time next Sunday afternoon. And uh, the Dockers will talk about shortly, but um, certainly one side going into that um, game on a bit of a high and uh, another side doing it tough at the moment. So it'll be particularly intriguing to see how that one pans out. And you're right about the consecutive goals too. I think 13 consecutive goals they've given up against Geelong after giving up, uh, I think, eight to the Saints last week. So they've got to do something about arresting opposition momentum because that's proving to be a big concern for Adam Simpson and co. All right, that was the 1.45pm game on Saturday. There was another game on Saturday at 1.45pm. Let's talk about that. Well, the second 1.45pm game was at Metricon Stadium between Gold Coast and Sydney. Gold Coast, of course, uh, struggling under the weight of injuries to some really important players, number least Matt Rowell and co-captain Jared Witts, and uh, their performances have started to become a bit of a worry. Sydney, the, um, I guess, uh, hottest item on the AFL ladder early in the season, come back to the fold a little bit in the previous couple of weeks, a narrow win over Essendon and a narrow loss to GWS. What was going to happen this time? Well, fair to say this was the most surprising result of the round because Gold Coast won and won handsomely by 40 points. The final score, Gold Coast 15-10, 100, defeating Sydney 9-6-60. The goals, five goals to Ben King, who's just looking more ominous by the week for the Suns. Three to Ainsworth, two to Corbett, and two to Isaac Rankin. And for the Swans, just one multiple goal kicker, and that was Hayden McLean, who uh, carried a bit of a lone burden up near the teeth of goal. Gold Coast uh, led this one all day, finally. Four goals to three in the first term and then really put a break on the Swans with a total of nine goals to just two in the second and third quarters and just held their ground thereafter. Really disappointing performance from the Swans and you just can't help wonder, have opponents started to work out that running game they were pursuing so effectively over the first month of the season. What do you reckon? Well, the Swans absolutely shot themselves in the foot in this game. I mean, yes, Gold Coast came with a game plan and they were as hard running and as positive as the Swans early and then took the initiative. You just have to look at the way Oleg Markov finished off the game. His run was frenetic, desperate and exciting. And it was basically, we're going to outrun you. It's our home patch and we're going to outplay you at your own game. But when Sydney had the ball, their ability to ball slaughter, almost given the conditions unparalleled for the season, they would have been so frustrated. So many times they did have kicks inside 50 that gave their forwards absolutely no chance of getting the ball. On the other hand, Gold Coast, were precise. Ben King was picked out a number of times and didn't let down his players further up the field. They got another good target down there in Corbett. 
their back line stood firm. And you know what? This was not a game, I think, in isolation because the way they played should, and I'm pretty sure they've got Collingwood at the G next week, should have them counting the days. Yeah, they, they want to get out on the track tomorrow to play the Magpies because that same sort of run will trouble the big Victorian powerhouse. Their run will cause the Maggies problems. You know, I was pretty um, critical of Isaac Rankin during the week. I thought that he'd had a very quiet start to the season. When the game was there to be won, the first two quarters, first yeah, the first half of the game, he really worked hard up the field, put his body on the line. And yes, his goals are always spectacular and great to watch, but he actually did some really good blue-collar stuff as well. And that, to me, was a sign that they, they were tuned in, that they'd been told during the week, hard work, hard running, and we can win this game. And they certainly did. You know, one guy we don't talk about nearly enough, in my view, and that's probably because so much attention has been on Matt Rowell and the, those amazing, uh, what, first three or four games at the start of last year. But Noah Anderson, the number two draft pick, he has played a full one and a half seasons now, and he is just consistently among the Suns best. And uh, I watched him closely in this one, and he's just terrific. He gets heaps of the ball. He consistently makes good decisions. He's composed, uh, a seriously good player. And uh, he was probably, I reckon, their best player yet again this week. He's been a fantastic pickup for them. Yeah, and you add... I think one of the most underrated midfielders in the comp, the steadily improved over his career, took Miller. Mm. And, you, you know, not yet, but you can see that midfield certainly developing with Matt Rowell, we can't leave him out of the equation, into a midfield that plays finals football. Not this year, but hopefully next year. Yeah, I think the Swans, uh, some of those younger Sydney guys definitely starting to feel a pinch a bit interesting among their best it tended to be the veterans, didn't it? Kennedy, Parker, um, Lloyd, uh, Mills, not a veteran, but one of the more experienced players of the younger brigade, probably the only one who sort of played near to the sort of levels he'd been setting was uh, Chad Warner. So interesting engagements of both these sides next week. The Suns, uh, they take on the Magpies, who are in a bit of trouble at the moment. That is 1.45pm on Saturday afternoon in Melbourne at the MCG. And Sydney, uh, they take on Geelong at the SCG on Saturday evening at 7.25pm. Before right. we wrap this one up, Rowan, can I ask you, should Sydney have played Isaac Heaney? One-handed is no way to play football, I would have thought. No, well, I, did, I was I had a look at the glove he was wearing, and it did tend to suggest, you know, there was something at play there, whether it was still physical injury or just psychologically. But yeah, it wasn't himself. Um, uh, he's a guy I'd always have in my side, though, so I probably would have taken the punt. But easy to be wise in hindsight, I suppose. All right, they were the two Saturday afternoon games. Uh, let's talk about Saturday twilight. Saturday afternoon at Marvel Stadium, we had Carlton taking on Brisbane and uh, intriguing contest this one. Brisbane getting back on track the previous week with a good win at home in the wet against Essendon. Uh, Carlton pretty disappointing against Port Adelaide at the MCG. This one at Marvel Stadium, 
what was going to happen? Well, uh, it was uh, nip and tuck. I think uh, both sides looked at times like they might be about to get on top, but eventually it was the Lions who had the better of proceedings, ending up with an 18-point win. Final scores, 15-13, to Carlton, 12-13-85. For the victors, three goals to Eric Hipwood, three goals to Charlie Cameron, and two to young Devin Robertson. And for the Blues, no doubt about their standout performer in this game, big Harry Mackay who really has arrived as a goal-kicking forward. Six goals to Harry, two to Murphy, two to McGovern. Uh, Well, finally, uh, Carlton hung in there and uh, four goals each in that third quarter. They they had a chance, but uh, their skill level for me is the big concern with them and that sort of inability to convert enough of the ball that they win. And uh, I've got to say this, it sounds a bit harsh, but they are a seriously mediocre team. They have a number of players who probably aren't up to AFL standard. They've got a number more who, even though they are up to standard, tend to butcher the ball. And Brisbane, in the end, were just too classy, too good for the Blues, who, um, yeah, I can understand the Blues supporters' frustrations because it's been a very slow process, this rebuild. And right now, I think they'd be justified asking the question, have we actually advanced at all in the last couple of years? Yeah, it's a fair question. And one thing they will be asking themselves is that much of their optimism this year was centred around the recruiting of two players with reputations, Zach Williams from GWS and Adam Saad from Essendon. Now, Adam Saad, I think, is hampered at the moment by some leg injury and his output certainly isn't what they expected. As for Zach Williams, he's got certain flaws in his game, I'll tell you. He's dynamic, but he's also sometimes blinkered. He doesn't always, um, I believe, take the best option and the team option. And also sometimes his kicking is absolutely, you know, substandard. So it's been a mixed bag with him and not quite what they've expected. Harry Mackay, fantastic. And he went off injured at one point during the game and um, we didn't know even if he was going to reappear. So he's a really arrived key forward, albeit with a very strange way of kicking goals because when he's straight in front 10 metres out, he prefers to still go around the corner. It looked a number of times during the night, didn't it, or the late afternoon, that the game was going to be busted open by the Lions. I guess to uh, Carlton's credit, they hung in there. And at other times, to Lions' sort of eternal frustration, they were profligate in front of goals. They had opportunities and they just can't put them away. You know, I, I imagine we will talk at some point during this podcast about Nat Five, who appears to have the yips in front of goal. But Brisbane have got a player who's a beautiful field kick, played a wonderful game, who cannot kick when he's kicking a goal. Hugh McCluggage has had career yips in front of goals. Well, I thought you were going to say Joe Danner, as a matter of fact. Well, I'm saying Joe Danner is back to his sort of weak kicking a goal. He just doesn't seem to power it through the middle of the goals, does he? And they're fading away and sort of barely making an impression on the behind. So he's back to his worst kicking a goal. I can understand why when they interviewed Neil Craig, uh, pardon me, Neil Craig, he, he did bob up on the weekend, by the way. 
he's at the Gold Coast. Um, when they did interview Fagan, he, he was just frustrated that the game was there to take, but they didn't quite rip its heart out. Because as you say, Carlton, bar for a few, not Crips included, are mediocre. That's right, not Crips. He's part of the mediocre band at the moment. No, well, I think one thing that's not lost on me with the Blues is that the guys that are probably their most consistent performers right at the moment, and by some measure, are Harry Mackay and Sam Walsh, and they're uh, two of their younger players. Now, uh, some of the older guys have have got to just get with the program a bit. I don't know what's happened to Sam Doherty, but he made a series of some of the worst blunders I've seen from an experienced player. And we, sure, that his leadership is important to them, but he's got to play better footy than that. And I think, uh, you know, you were critical of Mark Murphy uh, last week. I think it was better this week. Yeah, he was. He was. But I think uh, there's definitely a few in that older bracket for Carlton that need to get on their bike if they had to salvage much from this season at all. All right. What have they got next week, these two? Well, the Blues have got the Bombers at the MCG. Now, that is always a game where the result can fluctuate wildly regardless of form. And Brisbane, well, cracking contest for them. No doubt match of the round. Saturday night at the Gabba up against Port Adelaide. That will be a fascinating contest. All right, that was Saturday Twilight. Two games on Saturday evening. Let's turn our attention to them. Well, this was a game very, very keenly anticipated. Melbourne undefeated and, of course, Richmond, the bona fide heavyweight of the competition, having won three of the last four premierships. It was viewed as being a great test of Melbourne's legitimacy as a top team. And it was a test they passed with flying colours in front of a really impressive crowd too, 56,418 at the MCG, saw in the end a convincing 34-point win to the Demons. 12 goals, 10, 82, defeating Richmond, 6-12-48. The goals, three to Tom McDonald, two to Bailey Fritch, two to Luke Jackson, two to Alex Neil Bullen, and just four goal kickers to the Tigers, two each to Edwards and Jack Rewalt. But finally, Richmond led at quarter time, but after that, the Demons really held sway, not only in general play, but most importantly, on the scoreboard, five-goal lead up at three-quarter time. Were the Tigers going to launch some sort of comeback? Well, no, they didn't, because Melbourne turned in a sterling defensive performance in that last quarter, ending up restricting the Tigers to just one goal in the final term, while they themselves kicked two. 34-point victors, still undefeated. And as you said at the top of the show, very much a very real premiership chance. You had to be super impressed with this eclipse of the league's heavyweight, didn't you? So impressed. You know, they resisted the temptation to rush Wiedemann and Brown into the side against the heavyweight of the competition. And during a opening stanza where it was pouring down it certainly seemed like the right decision and they had to work their way into the game the starting the start of the game was Richmond dominated and they were on the scoreboard early with a couple of goals but also making it very hard for the Demons to score when they went forward but finally through persistence it paid off 
Petrarca stamped himself as though we didn't know he's a, a, one of the game's great players. He certainly reiterated that fact throughout the evening. Powerhouse footballer. And really, Melbourne, with the midfield that gets their hands on the ball first, we know how good Clayton Oliver has been this season. And Gorn is part of that midfield. And when I say part of the midfield, I mean part of getting the ball as well. They had all the answers for the Tigers. And I want one point made, Rowan. We know that Dustin Martin went off with concussion protocol in the second half later on in the game, but not before he had been taken to the cleaners by Mitch Hibbard every time he went forward. Michael so, Hibbard. Uh, Michael Hibbard, pardon me. Yeah, Mitch Hibbard played for, a bit for North, didn't he? Um, and Essendon. But he was fantastic, Michael Hibbard. He really was. Good body size to play on Dustin Martin. You sort of think that that's the play you need to play on him, don't you? Big, solid core, and uh, he didn't take a backward step. And Martin, he was probably pretty happy to spend the end of the game on the pine. Well, he's able to take him in the midfield and importantly when Martin went forward as well because that's where he's played the vast bulk of his footy pig Hibbard as a defender. Yeah, fantastic game from him. I've got to say, I thought Christian, look, as good as Petrarca was, I thought Christian Salem was a bit stiff not to oh, yes. yeah, I should have mentioned him. Frank Checker Hughes medal because in that first half, when it was still very much a contest on the scoreboard as well. Salem was absolutely outstanding. His form has, and we discussed him a couple of weeks ago, I sort of said, off the curve. In other words, not a player in his second or third year that you expect to improve rapidly. He's the one that has stepped out this year and really made huge advances in his career. And I've got to say, his form in the rain, his ball-handling skills because I'm not all that enamoured with the modern-day footballer's ability to play wet-weather football, but he certainly turned the clock back to some of the great wet-weather players when we were growing up, Rowan, and it was a delight to watch. Head over the ball. That's the first rule, isn't it? Yeah, and look, just on the Demons quickly, I think the advance that they have on where they're at in 2018, and let's not forget there was a side that was one win away from a grand final berth, but I think this side has more at its disposal. I mean, remember, we still haven't seen Sam Wiedemann or Ben Brown. So a couple of pretty handy goal-kicking key forwards to bring into the mix. Uh, they're not overly reliant on those medium-sized goal-kickers, but they can certainly chip in and kick winning scores for them. There's definitely a better connection between that midfield and the forward setup than they've had for a couple of years or since 2018. And they also now have the advantage of May and Lever, sensational dual-pronged key defence. And the thing they were able to do, we did speculate about could they cope with Richmond's key forwards. Well, they did that brilliantly because Adam Tomlinson uh, swung back into defence to play on Jack Rewalt, which allowed May and Lever to rotate on and off Lynch and the other one to act as third man up. Um, Great coaching from Simon Goodwin to have that faith in Tomlinson and it paid off handsomely for them. So, look, I think they've got more weapons at their disposal in 2021 than they had in 2018. And they are in very good territory at the moment. Not like the Tigers, who uh, we've seen them start shakily before, but uh, again, have their challenges, not only with the win-loss tally, but the injury tally. As you said, Dusty Martin will definitely miss next week. Got to be doubts about Kane Lambert, who has a calf injury. Dion Prestier, we haven't seen him for a bit. 
and the Tigers come up against the similarly undefeated Western Bulldogs in a massive test for them. That is going to be one eagerly awaited game. Demons next week, well, I shouldn't say they get it easy, but they're up against North Melbourne. That game's scheduled for Hobart. We're still not 100% whether it'll actually be played in Hobart, but um, certainly a good one to be coming off a big game you build up to for the Demons because North... Uh, certainly the easiest side to be taking on thus far in 2021. So we'll hopefully not have to close our eyes and see how much damage is done there. That was the first game on Saturday evening. There was another game played slightly later on, and that was over in Perth. Well, unfortunately, we were back to the spectacle of empty stands, of course, Perth. Uh, having to go into lockdown because of the coronavirus situation. So they locked the gates for the game between Fremantle and North Melbourne. Uh, And unfortunately for fans of the Dockers, they missed a pretty impressive performance from their team who ended up very comfortable, 51-point victors over the Roos, 14-15-99, defeating North Melbourne, 6-12-48 for the victors. Matt Tabin at four goals. He's really starting to consistently kick bags of goals, finding four goals to Lockie Schultz. Now, I sung his praises, I think, last week, and um, he's having a really good season. Really good little player. Very impressive. And speaking of impressive, what about the ageless David Mundy? Again, picking up a swag of possessions and chipping in with three goals. Wow, what a twilight of his career that man is having. For the Roos, just one multiple goal kicker, and that was Jaden Stevenson. Again, uh, a game in which the Roos hung in, defended well. Um, not much to question about their effort, but unfortunately, they do not have the cattle. And the Dockers were able to gradually wear them down. Four goals to one in the second term, four goals to two in the third term, and another three goals to one in the final quarter for that very comfortable win. What'd you make of this one, Fanny? What about David Monday Monday's performance? Again, pretty close to best on ground. The difference between Monday and his champion midfield counterpart, because he's an absolute champion, Nat Fife. His ability to pick up the ball in traffic and to move it on is just superb. He he was brilliant, except he doesn't cap his great work off with good goal kicking. Whereas Monday, field kicking and goal kicking is so precise. He's 35, 36 years old. He's in all Australian and even Brownlow medal. So it says something, doesn't it? Um, 35 rising, 36. The the pattern in now is sort of set for North Melbourne. They compete hard in the first quarter, but their young bodies and fragile minds can't seem to wrap the wrap themselves around the battle for four quarters. And as the game progresses, cracks begin to appear. They welcome back uh, LDU, Davis Uniaki, and he certainly played his part in the midfield. But that midfield is very thin. We know Cunnington's a great player. He was given a man-up job on Fife. It actually wasn't Cunnington's best game. So when Cunnington's down, you've got a bit of Davis Uniaki and nobody else. It becomes a, a, an impossible job to win clearances and to just get enough of the ball to be competitive. And unfortunately, there'll be more of the same. As for Fremantle, well, they've got that powerful midfield. 
Michael Walters, the more game time, the better. Still not having a great deal of scoreboard impact. The back line will be boosted in coming weeks with the return of Hamling and Griffin Logue was good. We know that Ryan is good. The midfield strong, the forward line with Taberner, Tracy still a work in progress, but Lobb definitely adds to the headaches in the opposition box. It's looking like a pretty complete team front to back, isn't it? Not the best team in the comp, but the makeup is consistent across the ground to make the finals, I reckon. Yeah, look, there's certainly a decent chance. I've got to say, I, I remain dubious until I see a couple more decent performances on the road. One win in Adelaide against Adelaide doesn't cut it for me. Uh, I need to see them repeat that a couple of times. As for North Melbourne, I wonder if they are deliberately playing a very defensive brand or they're trying to play more or offensively and just not capable of doing that because there's two ways of looking at this. I mean, if you, if you play a defensive style and just try and limit opposition's damage, yeah, look, okay, you can argue that you may not have your confidence worn down as quickly, but also if you're not trying to create something, I don't know if you're allowing your players to see the possibilities, even if it's rarely during a game. So I'm not saying that's what David Noble isn't letting them do, but I just asked the question because I think you need to still try to take the game on and maybe lose by more, but at least look at stages like you are capable of building on the sort of footy you're playing. The other thing about having a young side of the young list is you consistently get beaten in those hard indicators and it happened again they lost the clearance count by 13 they lost the contested ball count by 30 and uh, Freo do have some particularly strong bodies in that midfield so look there's not much the Roos can do to expedite that process they can sure they can pump the games into their players but they've just got to wait for guys to get older and stronger and more experienced before they start to dish up serious competition to the real elite sides of the competition. Uh, next week, as we said, the WA Derby next week, West Coast taking on Fremantle. Fremantle haven't had a great record at all in that game in recent times, but they'll give themselves every chance of winning this one. And North Melbourne down to play a home game against Melbourne in Hobart. But as I said, that still in a bit of doubt because of North Melbourne's stay over in Perth and the COVID ramifications there. Right, that was the five games on Sunday, Anzac Day itself, three games on the menu, and some very interesting results. Let's talk about them. Well, this one was down in Launceston. I think the first game we've had in Launceston since 2019. Uh, and what a cracker was dished up for the locals. This was a cracking game of football between Hawthorne and Adelaide. And in the end, it was the home side that prevailed by three points. And that after being at one stage, 32 points in arrears, thanks to one of the most accurate goal-kicking performances in history. Incredible from Adelaide, who at one stage had racked up 15 goals straight. Yes, 15 goals straight. Incredible stuff. The final scores, Hawthorne, 15-12, 102. Defeating Adelaide, 16-3, 99. The goal kickers, 5 to Kaczynski. He is an impressive young forward for the Hawks. Three goals to Luke Bruce, two to Mitch Lewis. And for Adelaide, 
How's this for one of the great debuts, finally? Riley Philthorpe, five goals. Boy, that's a mouthful to say. Five goals to him. Terrific debut performance. Three goals to Tex Walker. Two to Himmelberg. And two to McAdam. They'll be pretty, pretty disappointed with this, the Crows, finally. They were 32 points up early in that third term and still managed to let it slip. Their conversion early was unbelievable. I did take down some notes because I was so staggered by it. Uh, they had 13 goals straight from just 25 inside 50 shortly before halftime. Unbelievable stuff. But credit to Alistair Clarkson and the Hawks for turning it around. Some of their more senior players really got on board. Nonetheless, Tom Mitchell and Jay Gromira, they were fantastic in that second half. And bit by bit, they chipped away at that deficit, ended up dominating play in that last quarter. And then it became them who couldn't capitalise. They kicked 2-5 uh, early in that last quarter. But finally, hanging on, Adelaide held to just one behind in the last quarter. The inside 50s, very, very lopsided camp there. The Crows still have their chances. Bad miss to Ben Keys, which would have put them back in front. Um, and then a couple of match-saving marks for the Hawks by Sam Frost and Tim O'Brien in the thrilling final minutes. Uh, great win to the Hawks, finally. Adelaide would be disappointed given how dominant they were at one stage. Very disappointed. And Phil Thorpe, he was really exciting. Fantastic debut. I mean, there's a young man who... Well, the world's his oyster. Big marking key forward, moved well. Really liked the look of him. Hately was good too in his debut for Adelaide, the former giant. So a couple of bright starting starts to their career for Adelaide players, at least. They would be very disappointed because of the magnificent kicking and also the lead they had against a Hawthorne who stuck at their work. Kaczynski was good. But it was really O'Meara who took the game by the scruff of the neck, I reckon. I thought he was fantastic as he personally just willed him and his midfield into greater heights. McAvoy was getting beaten by O'Brien, but it was O'Meara working off some of O'Brien's hit outs and then around the ground that I think won them the game. There was a real chance for Adelaide to win that game. Taylor Walker's been superb this season, but he fumbled a mark that really all year his hands have been so sure. With a minute to go, did you see that? Yeah. He's had that opportunity. And I don't know whether it was nerves or whatever, but it's almost the first time he's dropped a mark like that all year. So a bit disappointing. But credit where credit's due. Hawthorne have won two games this year. And in those games, they've been down by 39 and... 32 points. Pretty good efforts. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good call, actually. I'd uh, maybe wiped from my mind that first one, which happened to be against my team. Bit of a uh, shout-out, too, to our boy, CJ. Uh, he did make a couple of blues at critical stages today, but, uh, boy, his his positive stuff is so good for them. It, it really adds an air of excitement, I think, to the mix for them. Some of his surges out of defence, one which set up an important goal, um, he, he was terrific. Overall, I thought he was terrific again for them. So uh, he's really developing at a, a, a real rate of knots and uh, it's great to watch. He is just a, a player we're all going to be glued to, I think, for the hopefully the next 10 years or so. Uh, 
Uh, what have both these sides got coming up next week? Well, the Crows get a home game at least. Uh, no easy task, though. They're up against GWS, who will probably be pretty annoyed at their last quarter fade-out on Friday night, but uh, certainly playing some better footy than they were over the first month. So uh, they will be keen to make a statement. Adelaide definitely will have to be on their game. And the Hawks take on your boys, Finey. St Kilda up against the Hawks in the Saturday Twilight game, 4.35 next Saturday at Marvel Stadium. Well, a pretty good entree to what is always one of the biggest games on the calendar. That, of course, is the traditional Collingwood, Essendon, Anzac Day clash. And uh, pretty interesting game this year. Let's talk about that right now. Well, always a massive occasion, Collingwood, Essendon. This one, no different. Um, first thing that needs to be said here is a crowd of 78,113. Biggest crowd to attend a sporting event in the world since the outbreak of the pandemic. So uh, well done to the people of Melbourne for turning up in their droves. What is a very special occasion, of course, one where we honour the servicemen and service women who have uh, served our country in battle. Very important occasion. Uh, one which I think has shown due reverence by the football world and certainly adds to the atmosphere of what is, in its own right, always a highly anticipated game. Different spin on it this year. Both teams struggling at 1-4. Both clubs having their share of issues off the field. A win was pretty important for both and both also struggling with some injuries to key players. Who would emerge in better shape? Well, after five minutes, you would have sworn this was going to be a massacre, but it wasn't. In fact, the side that looked like doing the massacring didn't even end up winning the game. It was a 24-point win to a pretty impressive Essendon, I have to say. 16 goals, 13, 109, defeating the Pies, 13-7, 85 the goals, five goals to Anthony McDonald Tippenwoody. What a great performance from him after uh, he's had his own battles with form so far this year. Two goals to Peter Wright, who stood up at critical moments in the second half. Two to Darcy Parrish. What a game from him, 40-plus disposals. Two to Snelling, including the sealer. For the Pies, three goals to... Ruckman slash forward Darcy Cameron, 3-2 McCreary, singles the rest. What do you make of this game, Finey? Because after five minutes, I was tempted to turn my TV off. I thought, oh, this is going to be embarrassing. But credit to the Bombers. They certainly found their tougher edge in this game. Their pressure, their tackling was great. Collingwood, you could argue, almost keeping themselves in it through their better forward efficiency um, and creeping very close early in the last quarter with the first goal that last term. But the Bombers held sway and uh, ended up uh, pulling away in the finish with uh, a victory probably more reflective the margin of the dominance that they had territorially. So pretty good win to the Bombers. What do you make of it? Well, I could put it down to one word. And it's going to raise a very interesting discussion, in my mind, anyhow. Darcy Parrish was from... Siren, first to last, unbelievable. He was also 
left alone for an entire afternoon to receive handballs, to get clearances, to kick goals. Do they coach? Do coaches coach anymore? There was no surprise that Darcy Parrish would be the man to put the final nail in the coffin, that he was the man that ignited most exciting movement in that last quarter. Why shouldn't he? He'd done it all day. It didn't take Einstein to work out that this man needed to be stopped. And at no point did Collingwood make any effort whatsoever to bring his influence under some control. I don't get it. I just don't get what coaches do on match day. They seem to be less involved in the game than the cheer squad. Now, he was magnificent, Parrish. He had two mates, don't worry. Mac Tip, as you pointed out. Some forward pressure with tackles and five great goals. Some of them just strength, boring in and willing himself, first of all, to win the ball, and secondly, to make the contest and to get the ball through the big sticks. It was great to watch. Essendon would be very pleased with Nick Cox. I thought he had a fantastic game. Whereas Collingwood, well, they've really got to look to the likes of Pendlebury again, mainly Pendlebury, for some sort of inspiration. I wonder what Josh Thomas does on a football field. He seems to end the game in the same pristine white outfit and not huffing and puffing as he starts a game. And they needed more run and some help in the midfield. I'm also curious at the use of Josh Dacos, who I thought was great when he went into the middle, winning clearance after clearance. He was, I think, seven midfield, midfield clearances, third most for the day, behind maybe Parrish on nine. But, and this is the big but, he was only in the middle of the ground for five minutes a quarter. Mm. Why wasn't he? Why, why wasn't that increased as Collingwood desperately needed to win those battles? Well, I, th- I, th- I think they've got some real questions to ask about the composition of their midfield group because I thought Scott Pendlebury was outstanding today. It was the best game he's played all season. Uh, we talked about, you know, is he having the same sort of influence with his disposals? Well, today he did. I thought he was terrific. He had 30. Steel Sidebottom had 30. Uh, Jack Crisp had 30. 90 disposals between those three. Um, then we talked last week about how Collingwood isn't getting as much of the footy as it used to. Well, it didn't lose the disposal count by a lot today, but it's just not as effective with the amount of ball it has. That said, it made the most of its forward opportunities. But that midfield isn't the sort of, well, not even cream on the cake. Uh, it, it's always been the, I guess, the foundation of any good effort Collingwood put together. That midfield group now it just isn't having the same influence on games as it used to, which means that they've got a midfield that is not as good as several others you can easily name in the competition. Its defence is okay, but perhaps has been unsettled a little by having to move Darcy more forward, which has happened because their forward setup is inadequate. So they have issues structurally all over the park. And in the end, you start sort of moving pieces around everywhere and you end up saying, well, why are we doing this? We're doing this because we don't have enough depth or quality. And that's about where I think the pies are. The other observation I'd make quickly, Finey, and look, I love seeing the Bombers win on Anzac Day. They haven't done much of it in the recent time, so it's always good to see. But I don't think either of these two sides this year anyway present any sort of threat to the upper echelons of the competition. I think they're two pretty average teams, to be honest. Yeah, but you take your wins when you get them. And 
especially when you see players like Nick Cox developing before your very eyes. So Essendon should be well pleased with what happened this afternoon. And they should also be pretty proud of a couple of battlers because that's really what Andrew Phillips and Peter Wright are. Andrew Phillips curbed the influence of Grundy, I thought, pretty bravely. And as you said, Peter Wright, he marked the ball beautifully in the second half and gave, finally, Essendon a meaningful tall target. So, you know what? Something to go on with for the Bombers, whereas Collingwood, second bottom on the ladder, it's going to be a long, cold winter. Yeah, well, I'll enjoy the win. Uh, These few precious hours, finally, and then I'll focus on next week. And uh, speaking of next week, the Bombers have another traditional rival in Carlton. They will meet the Blues at 3.20pm on Sunday afternoon. And the Pies have the first game on Saturday on their agenda against Gold Coast, 1.45pm. Also at the MCG Saturday afternoon. One game left in the Anzac round and it was over in Adelaide. Final game of round six, and it was a very ominous-looking Port Adelaide up against St Kilda, who haven't enjoyed a great start to the season at all. Could the Saints show something? Well, no, not a lot, as it transpired, because this was a shellacking. In fact, a shellacking, you could argue, probably not even reflected on the scoreboard. In the end, the final scores, Port Adelaide, 14 goals, 9, 93 54-point victors over the Saints, five goals, 9-39. The goal kickers for Port, 3-2 Motlop, 3-2 Fantasia, really starting to find his groove at his second home. 2 to Georgiades, 2 to Dixon, 2-2 Rosie, all single goal kickers for the hapless Saints, who were only three goals, at three-quarter time, just one goal in each of the first three quarters. Port seemingly doing what they liked. Finey, uh, obviously not a happy experience for you, but a couple of stats I want to throw to you because I reckon they're pretty telling. Port Adelaide finished this game with exactly 150 more disposals than St Kilda, which just couldn't get its hands on the footy. 13 of the top 15 individual possession winners on the ground were Port Adelaide players. Interestingly, contested ball and the inside 50s, remarkably, were pretty much even, but Port just smashed the Saints on the outside. They had 142 more uncontested possessions. And the Saints looked pretty slow and pretty hapless and out of inspiration from pretty early in the piece. What did you make of this one? Well, confirmation that St Kilda, one of the pre-season fancies, by most people's estimation, to make the finals, are not playing finals this year. That is now all over after four games. St Kilda, even worse than the fact that their third bottom, have a percentage of 67. And that was reflected in the game. They were not competitive after a bright enough start. Even at quarter time, they could say 1-4-4-1, that they had a fair share of the ball. Incredibly, in that first quarter, Port Adelaide, four goals, one to one four, only had the ball in their forward 50, officially 5% of the quarter, time-wise. Amazing. That 
was eventually addressed as St Kilda's midfield was almost non-existent. Ball usage poor, spread terrible, and it was the easiest game of keepings off once the ball got into that middle sector. Further to that, St Kilda were ill-disciplined. Georgiades kicked two goals, is that correct? Yep. Both of them from Marks that he took inside 50, but were made certainties because they both received 50-metre penalties. Once by an unfortunate blue by Steele and then another one for a piece of ill-discipline by Long, who was capable this season of more ill-discipline than possessions. So it was a slow, as you say, uninspired and ill-disciplined St Kilda that could have got taken apart to the tune of 100 points. This is now becoming a disastrous year for the Saints and the only bright spark for St Kilda was a very good game by Rowan Marshall. Gee, he's a quality player. Beyond that, thrashed. Carl Amon, brilliant. Ollie Wines, outstanding. Dixon, dominating. And a backline that did as they pleased, led by Darcy Byrne-Jones' run. It could have been much worse for St Kilda supporters. Take that to bed. Can I just say this, though? And I know, obviously, you're disappointed, given your allegiances. But can we really say confirmation that a side won't be playing finals when they are actually still only one game outside the eight with 16 games to play. Yep. Given St Kilda's very difficult draw that has five more interstate games, has them playing repeat games against Port Adelaide, Brisbane, Richmond and Sydney. And just that percentage says it all. Yep. No, they're not playing finals. Uh, well, I understand the um, pessimism. I, I want to talk about one guy in particular because this guy is a really good example to me of a slow developer but who has just got a little bit better each year and he is now a pretty important member of that Port Adelaide side and I'm talking about Carl Amon. It's been a really slow burn with him. I think this might, might even be his fifth or sixth season but he just gets a bit better each year. And uh, he's playing terrific footy now. He had 34 disposals today, damaging left foot. And uh, he's really added something to them. And we've said this uh, a couple of times already this season. You looked at Port and you thought, well, how can they get better? Well, undoubtedly, they're better in defence with Aaliyah Aaliyah's presence down there. I think they've got better up forward too. Orazio Fantasia is clearly going to be great value to them. Georgiades. You know, had some appearances last year, but he has really added a, a, a new sort of dimension to the forward setup. And it's not just all about Charlie Dixon. Uh, Todd Marshall's another one. So I think they, to me, look a better side again this year, which obviously you'd think has to increase exponentially their premiership chances. I would say that a Lear for a targeted need is the best recruit or best trade in the competition this season. He has been magnificent, just what the doctor ordered at Port Adelaide. Fantasia looks like he did at his best at Essendon, which seemed a mile off over the last two years of injury-plagued non-appearances. So you're right on both those counts. You put Zach Butters in the team, who was having a brilliant start to the season. He'll be back within a week or so. And... Xavier um, Dersma to come back. Xavier Dersma, very good player. So, yeah, they do look better. And Amon, over the last three years, Amon has been the sort of fringe player that Victorian clubs have had a sniff at 
And you thought during the trade period, his name had been thrown up a lot, that, yeah, they'll let him go. But obviously, Ken Hinckley and co. realised that there was an upward graph for this player. They never traded him, of course. And now you couldn't get your hands on him for love nor money. All right. Well, it uh, doesn't get much easier for the Saints. Uh, it seems funny saying that given they're playing Hawthorne next week. But the Hawks, of course, had a, a really inspiring comeback win today down in Tassie against Adelaide. And they will be tough opposition next Saturday, Twilight 4.35. And the game of the round next week, Port Adelaide. Great test for them. Uh, they go up to the Gabba to take on Brisbane at home. So that should be a ripper, 7.25 next Saturday evening. That is all nine games of round six analysed. We have one segment left in this show, Finey, and it's a segment where we fire up and get really angry. So let's do it. On Footyology, the rant off. Well, a really interesting round six, the Anzac Day round, but uh, there's always something that pisses me off, Finey, as you know well. That's how we come up with all the material for our uh, one of our favourite segments and a long-established part of this podcast. And uh, I've got one that's been grinding my gears for a few weeks. I've kept it up my sleeve, but I reckon now is the time to go with it. So I'd like you to count me in, and then I will reveal all. One, two, grind away. I'm pissed off with the AFL's abandonment of long-established football tradition, Finey. What am I talking about? Well, it could be any number of things over the last 20 or 30 years, couldn't it? But today I'm railing against the latest example, that is the dispensing with the announcement of AFL teams on a Thursday night. Now, I know what the thinking has been here. The days of everyone crowded around league teams or the radio on a Thursday evening waiting to hear their sides read, read out, a long gone. It had ceased to be a big deal even long before the footy show wound up. And when you have three games on a Sunday for which complete teams didn't need to be announced until a Friday night, the guessing game of a 25 or 26-man squad diluted the significance even more. The new arrangement, where teams don't have to be released until the night before a game, certainly works better for clubs. But does it work for the fans? I don't think so. Given the frantic nature of the media news cycle these days, unless the teams are released in one hit, they're seeping out into the public domain in dribs and drabs across up to four days is going to have all the impact of a slap with a wet lettuce leaf. That's how it's worked so far in 2021. A big inclusion or a big absentee from a game now more likely to be buried under the weight of clickbait, frenzied reports on which controversial former player said, which controversial thing on which controversial TV football panel show or who Kane Corns is bagging on SEN this five minutes. And I miss it finally, as I think all genuine footy fans do. Those heartwarming tales of the debutant who's been slogging away for too long for an opportunity. The backstory of the star kid who gets to strut his stuff on the big stage. They were perfect for Friday morning's paper. They help build the sense of anticipation, the sense of occasion around any AFL game. But now, unless you keep one eye permanently peeled to several different news feeds over a 72-hour period or individual clubs' Instagram accounts, you're just as likely not to know who's actually run out for your team until a bloody game has started. And when it comes to Instagram, by the way, that's if you can find any news about your club buried among the glut of promoted ads and 
influencers desperately trying to generate enough attention about their new shoes so they can get a gig on Married at First Sight or some other rubbish TV show. While we're at it too, I don't know if some people who run club social media accounts have necessarily got the greatest of handles on what sort of information their fans actually want. I see a lot of snappy looking graphics when they release the teams these days, but sometimes they seem to be missing some fairly basic information. You know, like who's actually in and out of the starting lineups. Might be something for them to work on. But the AFL has missed the mark here. Surely it wants to generate positive publicity around the game and try to stop the endless stream of footy clickbait that tries to focus on the drama rather than the substance. What better chance is there than a team story? One, it's more likely than not to be about an inclusion supporters want to know and read about. Second, whatever the slant, at least you know it's going to be about an actual impending game of football and not yet another bloody blow-by-blow account of how one guy in a suit got to replace another guy in a suit sitting around a board table. I would have thought it was a no-brainer and reason enough to leave the team's announcements as they were. But hey, what would I know? I just grew up on the terraces at Windy Hill and have been immersed in and going to the game every weekend for 50 years. And as we all know, Fanny, that's no prerequisite for having a say in how the game's run these days. Now, if I'd gone to St Kevin's, owned an Italian suit and had drinks with Gil and the boys at the bot every Friday night, then I'd get to have my two bobs worth. Ah, oh, Rowan, the old rank and file supporter. We're not being looked after and I hate that there's no teams. I agree with you entirely. Well, well like... They snuck it in too, you know. There was no announcement or anything yeah. like they do with oh, any yeah. change now. Not no, good very, enough. Very annoying. Not good enough, AFL. All right, I'm going to count you in. Three, two, one, rant. I'm not ranting, Rowan. I'm remembering. And through a football story of great tragedy and coincidence, marking this day, Anzac Day of 2021, And I do it through the story of two footballers who didn't play a lot, but had a great coincidental career in life. Fenley McDonald, who played 10 games for Carlton and one for Melbourne. And Claude Crowell, who played just three games for St Kilda. Both country boys. They came to Melbourne from country Victoria, not for football, but to further their education. But they were both good country footballers. And in 1911, playing local football, had caught the eye of the Carlton Football Club and were invited to train there. Fed McDonald was kept on and young Claude Crowell, not as impressive, returned back to local ranks. And that appeared to be the end of Crowell's dream of a league career. Step in St Kilda, who in their 14 years at VFL level, had not only failed to impress on-field, but off-field were racked with internal disputes and financial crises. Nothing that would change much over the years. And before round 15 of 1911, some 18 senior players walked out on the club demanding that their pay be forthcoming. The club put an ad in the newspapers of the day, the Australasian, the Argus, with an incredible offer that any local footballer could train on the Thursday night and those that impressed would have a chance to play at the highest level against Carlton on Saturday. Well, 
Claude Crowell thought this was his chance. And amongst hundreds of likely or hopeful debutants turned up at the Junction Oval and was picked to play for St Kilda in their game against Carlton. That very same week, Fen McDonald, impressing in, in Carlton's reserves team, was elevated to the seniors. So McDonald made his debut on the very day that Claude Crowell made his. Carlton won by 114 points. Crowell would play two more games before the player's strike ended and he returned to local football. Fed McDonald's stop-start career ended with one game in 1913 for the Demons. At that point, the world was at war and these two young men, who had trained together at Carlton but shared no common bonds otherwise, both enlisted as part of Australia's war effort in the First World War. And off they went to fight for their country, or more accurately, to see the world, an adventure that they thought would take them to Europe and back again as heroes. They were both in the 1st AIF, 7th Battalion for Macdonald, 8th for Crowell. And they were to make a debut together again, as they had done at Princess Park many years earlier. Only this time, it wasn't the field of football, but the field of war, as they were both part of the first landing at Gallipoli on the 25th of April in 1915. And sadly, there would be one more coincidence. They were both killed that day in battle. The exact details not known. Their families desperate to find out more would be left in the dark, only knowing that their brave young sons, league footballers both, again, had made a debut together, but this time with very different outcomes. And so on this day where we remember our fallen and we remember the follies of war and the tragic loss, spare a thought for two young league footballers who started and ended careers and lives on the very same day. Wow. That is, uh, that is some story and very well told too. It's certainly not our traditional rant, but absolutely the appropriate occasion for it and a very moving account. So I had no knowledge of that at all and I'm sure most of our audience didn't either. So thanks very much for sharing that, Fanny. And uh, another salient reminder there that there are far more important things in the world than football. Um, terrific story, terrific story. All right, we're going to wrap things up there. A quick plug, though, to our sponsors, if you could. Yeah, we love our sponsors and we certainly love Andrew's Hamburgers. High-quality people and product. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, and same can be said for Nick's Bartels, West Point Properties for an inner-city rebuild or renovation. And, of course, our other commercial partner here at Footyology, Stats Insider, the best sports data analysts in the business. Check out their website, statsinsider.com.au. Everything's free to use and not only some great stats, but some great football writing as well. That's it for this week, everyone. Uh, please jump on Patreon and support us or you can support us at the link wherever you are listening to this ACAST 
podcast. Been a terrific weekend of footy. Hope your team had a win. Better luck next week. If they didn't, we'll see you again for our Round 7 preview edition next Wednesday. Catch you later.